Daily Thrones is on the air. This is your quick look at the world of ice and fire. Thanks for joining me here on Anchor or the Daily Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. We had some great calls and discussions yesterday. Uh, a lot of it around the episode Spoils of War, episode four from season seven. We talked a lot about the moments in there. We got one more to discuss. And don't forget to answer the question from yesterday. Who would win? The Rohirrim, the Lord of the Rings, or the Dothraki in a fair fight? Let me know. Hey, Ken, I'm going to piggyback off of Eric and Vic's call about the Spoils of War and Jamie's look, but I'm going to talk about Bronn's look, and you brought it up at the very end of last episode, but Bronn's look, when he nails Drogon with the Scorpion Bolt, is one of pure joy and just thrill. Um, Jerome Flynn does such a good job of emoting what it would be like to be in that battle and then to be able to hit this dragon. And then we said that no one's ever seen these dragons before. Um, It's the first time. It's the shock and awe factor. And he gets to be the one who actually does something to one. Uh, So Jerome Flynn does a great job of uh, emoting that. And it's funny because you think he's just sitting at a green screen. He's got this big prop in him. And they're like, hey, act like you just shot a dragon. And Jerome Flynn's like, all right, let me do this. And he pulls it off perfectly, and it's so great. It's such a little, a great little moment. Um, another great face in the Spoils of War. There's so much to break apart in the Spoils of War, particularly that loot train battle, which dominates the episode. I do agree with you, Jeff, that Jerome Flynn, one of the better actors on the show, one of the more engaging, charismatic performers on the show, does an amazing job of pretending to shoot a dragon. It is the amazing feat, uh, the, uh, the continued amazing feats of these actors on the show, asked to do so much to something so foreign. Danny uh, high atop a animatronic dragon or saddle on a dragon, if you will, uh, does such a good job. Other than the end of season five, it was a little bit never-ending story for me, right? A lot of people. But yeah, they pull it off so well, and then it comes together. This is why this show should win all the awards consistently, just to put this together in such a cinematic way, shot like a movie. I mean, this is it still amazes me what they're putting on TV, which is why in season seven, which had some questionable moments or some weird decisions, I understand that. I'm not dumb. I see it, too. I still look back and go, all right, I don't understand why Snow Team 6 went north of the wall and why only one of them died and it seemed kind of convenient. But this is still some of the most amazing stuff I've ever seen on television and probably in the theaters. And this incident that you're talking about, Braun shooting Drogon, the tension sound design, the editing, everything that went into this moment, the acting, even the acting of Drogon, yep, even the acting of Drogon, came together so well. So it's those little moments you can appreciate when when you're pulled into it, when you're holding your breath because you don't know if Bronn's going to die or Drogon's going to die and you can't figure it out. That's where the show really succeeds and that's where these little moments really stand out. Hey, Ken. Uh, normally, I agree with you on most things. I'm normally on the same page with you, but Rohirrim versus Dothraki is where I definitely differ. Um, the Rohirrim, to me, would definitely beat the Dothraki in an open field battle, uh, especially if the numbers were even. Um, the Rohirrim, like you mentioned, are braver. Um, they actually wear armor while being able to ride their steeds. The Dothraki are brash, cocky, overconfident, would charge in with no ranks, whooping and hollering and 
uh, standing on their horses. Um, while the, the Rohirrim actually are going to have strategy and great leadership and be able to pull them through the day. Um, also, the, the Rohirrim, like you mentioned, charge into battle against Oliphants. Um, and then they also face one of their greatest adversaries, which are the Urukai, which in my opinion are a greater foe than the Dothraki. Uh, the Dothraki are just crazy, wild, barbarian humans, where the, where the Urukai are, uh, they crave man flesh, they want one thing, and that's death and destruction. Um, and then they had to fight that, fight that. So I definitely think the Rohirrim are braver. Right, it's the question we've kind of been dealing with all week here. Rohirrim from Lord of the Rings, Dothraki, Game of Thrones. Fair fight, open field, in the mountains, fair fight. That's all we're asking. Jeff disagrees with me. He is taking the Rohirrim. I can't disagree with your reasons, but I'm still going with the Dothraki. If they can just focus, if they think this is more than practice, that's not it for the answers. You guys let us know. Jeff says Rohirrim. I'm saying Dothraki. We might need a deciding vote. Call in here at Daily Thrones. Let us know. And who, who will you take in this fantasy fight? Hey, Ken. So the next moment I want to talk about comes from Eastwatch, which is which is an episode I actually really love. There's, you know, coming off the action of uh, the Fields of Fire 2, uh, you know, Spoils of War. You know, this this is an episode that didn't have a lot of action, but it had a lot going on, a lot of movement with the story. It was a big prelude to what was coming in the next two episodes, and there's so many moments in this episode. But the moment I want to talk about, have to talk about, is finally seeing Gendry again. And he's a character we all wondered about since we last saw him in the season three finale, rowing away when Davos set him free. And, um, you know, Davos running into him. You know, I loved, I absolutely loved it. I was so happy to see him. A lot of people didn't like that Davos said that, you know, the kind of the joke, I thought you'd still be rowing, but I didn't really care. But the moment I really loved was when he shows Davos the hammer with the stag on it, because it showed me that he has embraced his lineage of who his father was, Robert Baratheon, and he has embraced being a Baratheon. Eric's got a great moment from episode five, Eastwatch, which is an interesting episode because I think over time that will be one of the more stronger episodes of season seven. But at the time, you were coming off uh, the loot train paddle. You're coming off Spoils of War, which was, you know, took your breath away. And you had to wait for that. And then we're also gearing up for what we knew was coming. We kind of could figure there's going to be this mission north of the wall, some bad stuff going on there. And we thought, well, Eastwatch's title is going to start going down here. And, well, technically it did start there, but it wasn't until Episode 6 that it really took off. So Episode 5, Eastwatch can get overlooked, but it does have the return of Gendry. And I actually like that. I like that they brought him back. Some people might criticize it as fan service. Might say, what's the reason for Gendry coming back? Is there a reason? We'll see if he factors in to George R. R. Martin's story. But on the TV show, yeah, it works a little bit like fan service. But fan service sometimes gets a bad name. If it fits in the story, it works, and it doesn't take away. And Gendry coming back didn't take away from the story for me. And you're right, Eric. I love that moment where he kind of reveals, no, I'm a, I don't have a sword. I have a hammer, just like his father before him. It's a good connection. Gendry also, as we learn, pretty fast runner in the snow. That turned out to be valuable, right? So I like that moment, and I like Davos hinting or joking or breaking the fourth wall just a little bit with a meta reference to I thought you'd still be rowing to the jokes that have been going on since Gendry last rowed off into the sunset in his little ship, so uh, in his little boat. So he's back. I liked it. What do you guys think? Gendry? Fan service? 
Is that a bad thing? Is it a good thing? What do you think about that episode, Eastwatch? Now, is there a favorite moment from that episode? Let us know here on Daily Thrones. Hey, Ken, Kevin Ross. Uh, Happy 2018, and because of 2018, the very first crazy, way out in the weeds, uh, deep fan theory uh, we've got this year is the Children of the Forest destroyed Valyria. Let me explain. Uh, we know that they we destroyed the land bridge, which we now call the Stone Steps on the map, to prevent men from coming across from Essos to Westeros. But it is entirely, and the uh, Valeria had such an expansion uh, to the Ryan, um, to Bravos, Pentos, um, all the way, all the way up to the Stepstones. So it is entirely possible and highly probable because the Children of the Forest deal in natural magic that they caused the uh, volcanoes to erupt using fire magic because they saw dragons as the next logical step in uh, their uh, destruction. What do you think? Thanks. All right, I decided I wanted to close out my broadcast day with a wonderful deep cut fan theory brought to us by our friend Kevin over at Three Cocktail Questions. And I like it. I think this is plausible. The idea that the children of the forest are responsible for the doom of Valeria. I'm so intrigued by the doom of Valeria because it's one of those things that's spoken of often. And on the show, we actually see the, the damage. We actually see Valeria now. And it spoke of, you know, with this great uh, kind of history, almost a reverence for what happened. And it makes me wonder, is it important? Does it factor into the story? Or is it just one of those cool little wrinkles in the history of Westeros and Essos that George R. R. Martin has created? This this in-depth history for this world that we love. I would like to think that the Doom of Valeria has some connection to the overall picture, the overall story. I don't know if we'll ever find out. And I don't know if the Children of the Forest destroying Valeria, what that really does. But, you know, the Children of the Forest, if uh, if it plays out in the books as it is on the show, that they created the, the White Walkers to help them win the battle, and the, that, that went bad. We know, I guess we can't say we know, but we believe through history and lore that the Children of the Forest are responsible for breaking the uh, connection between Westeros and Essos down down there uh, at Dorne, as Kevin said in his theory. So could could at any point they have used that little land bridge, I say little, but two continents connected, to go over, cause some problems in Valyria, take it out, maybe they don't like the idea of the dragons, and scuttle back destroying the uh, bridge uh, at Dorne, uh, splintering that and heading back and dealing with the rest of the problems in Westeros. Could that have been the case? I like the idea of the children of the forest in Essos. If, if they were are the, the first before the first men, if they're the first creatures here, I imagine this whole world, especially if it was connected down at Dorne, that they would have gone around all of it, Westeros and Essos and beyond. What we still don't know what is it? What exists beyond? What's west of west, as we always say here on the show? So I can buy into this theory. Does does it factor in? Does it matter? Is it just a cool little wrinkle if it was to be proven true? I don't know. That's part of the fun of a song of ice and fire. Any little line, any little bit of history might be a clue or might be a factor in what's to come. What do you think about this crazy theory? What's your crazy theory? And don't forget, we're still looking at our favorite moments from season seven. We're up to the final 
couple episodes if you have one of those or a season moment uh, we missed from a prior season uh, let us know here on daily thrones we'll see you tomorrow